Well, I'm, I'm uh, most delighted to be here uh, at the Freud Museum. Um, this is a real honor and a pleasure to, to be able to um, uh, address um, this audience. Um, I'd like to thank the, the Freud Museum for hosting and um, also especially a thank you to, um, uh, to Lene Austad for, for facilitating this and then also later to, um, to moderate uh, the session. Uh, I come to you here in, in London from um, a conference uh, at um, uh, Weimar, uh, it, it was, the conference was entitled um, um, Aufrechte Gang im uh, Winschiefen Kapitalismus. Um, translation uh, is, is basically a uh, kind of morally upright um, comportment in a turbulent um, capitalism. And so I presented uh, a version of, of this talk uh, there. Um, I came from Weimar by way of um, uh, Vienna, where I gave a talk on the way in which, um, in, in my country in particular, this, um, these um, processes of, of extractivism, so the, the emphasis in the country on, uh, on oil and gas um, uh, development, um, in particular the development of the tar sands, which I, I hope everybody knows about, particularly post-Paris people should know about um, this uh, particular uh, project within Canada because it is so uh, potentially devastating um, uh, ecologically. My talk was really on the way in which the development of uh, what I call extractivism has really um, uh, led to a kind of tendency f- within the state um, for the executive branch to become increasingly overbearing um, and um, seeking to marginalize, especially the judicial branch. Um, what I'm looking at there, in other words, uh, are sort of objective processes that are undermining institutions of uh, democracy. Um, what I'm trying to do in this talk is to think with psychoanalysis um, about how there are parallel processes of a kind of subjective undermining of the capacity for uh, democratic action. Um, and insofar as democratic action uh, itself produces and reproduce, reproduces the conditions uh, for democratic institutions, um, we have um, a thoroughgoing crisis, I think. Um, and so those kinds of um, questions uh, hopefully we'll be able to take up in, um, in the discussion period. Um, I do want to start with a couple of quotes. Um, the first is by Donald Winnicott from a, um, an essay uh, that he wrote, actually a talk that he wrote called, and I'm sure many people will be familiar with this in, in, in the room, Some Thoughts on the Meaning of the Word uh, Democracy. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful opening um, for my purposes, and I, I think you'll, you'll see how in just a second. First of all, let me say that I realize I'm offering comments on a subject that is outside my own specialty. Sociologists and political scientists may at first um, resent this impertinence. Yet it seems to me uh, to be valuable for workers to cross boundaries from time to time, provided that they realize, as I do indeed, that their remarks must inevitably appear naive to those who know the relevant literature and are accustomed to a professional language of which the intruder is ignorant. So I would turn that around and say that, you know, in a sense, the, um, uh, the shoe is on the other foot. So uh, my background is 
politics, political theory, comparative politics, um, and I'm venturing into into these, this um, uh, this realm of psychoanalysis. So um, please bear that in mind. I, I'm, I'm very interested to hear from people um, uh, to get feedback on on the arguments, so I can uh, I can strengthen them and 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 um, develop this project. Um, so the second. Um, uh, Quote is an epigram, uh, an epigram to the paper, and it's from uh, uh, Walter Benjamin, a short uh, fragment that he uh, wrote um, that remained unpublished um, in 1921. It's just a real sketch, couple of page sketch, um, uh, called called uh, Capitalismus als Religion, and it goes: Capitalism is probably the first instance of a cult that creates guilt and not atonement. Okay, all right. Contemporary neoliberal capitalism can be said to be characterized by two significant features. On the one hand, a staggering increase in social and economic inequality since the mid-1970s. For example, since 1977, 60% of the increase in U.S. national income has gone to the top 10%. Combined with the constellation of forces and tendencies, for example, increasing investment in fixed capital and technical innovation, such as intensifying automation, this inequality will likely only increase in coming years and decades. On the other hand, in place of a robust, radically democratic challenge to the growth of an inequality so great that it shakes the foundations, the very foundations of the social order, the rise in support for authoritarian populist political movements throughout Europe and North America proceeds apace. By authoritarian populist movements, I mean um, uh, simply those movements that purport to embody or represent the will of the people understood in narrow ethno-national terms defined in opposition to a power block. This is exemplified most dramatically by the breakthrough um, uh, of the Front National, which came out on top in the first round of recent regional elections in France, an advance that was only ha- halted um, in the second round by the expedient tactical voting uh, of the French socialists. The United States, of course, has witnessed the rise of Donald Trump as a front-runner for, Republican pres- for the Republican presidential nomination on the basis of an unapologetically racist and profoundly xenophobic agenda that has sought explicitly to target Mexican immigration and has proposed a complete ban on Muslims entering the country. How is it possible to account for this strange and profoundly troubling conjunction of deepening socioeconomic inequality and the growing rise of authoritarian populism and ethno-nationalist extremism? From the militant left, commentators such as Statis Kuvilakis have argued that neo-fascist political parties are anti-systemic uh, movements that seek to, pre- to preserve existing um, property relations. Kuvilakis argues, and I quote, Nonetheless, it is precisely this aspect of the FN, its capacity to capture and hegemonize a form of popular revolt, that means that any Republican front strategy, whether a partial or a total one, can only feed it, legitimizing its discourse of us against uh, all the rest and its self-proclaimed status as the only force opposing the system, even radically so, end quote. According to Kuvilakis, the FN has managed to enjoy such success precisely because it occupies terrain that has been almost entirely vacated by an anti-capitalist left 
unable to challenge the existing power bloc through a counter-hegemonic project of its own that would pose a legitimate alternative to neoliberal capitalism uh, in general and austerity in particular. In contrast, social democrats such, such as Jürgen Habermas in his recent writings on the deepening um, crisis of Europe have argued that the crisis is one of political institutions or to be more precise, a problem that can be understood as the lack of uh, political institutionalization, a eurozone without common foreign and fiscal policies and a legal order that could be said to embody the public will of a genuine post-national constellation. Here it is less a matter of transforming capital as it is a question of bringing the social and political subsystems under the sway of the symbolically mediated forms of communication embodied in the life world. Although, as we have seen in recent years, the crucial question of whether it is possible to speak of a single European life world shaped, sorry, shared by both uh, Northern and Southern Europe, Germany and Greece, of course, is a confounding um, sociological question. As Habermas states, and I quote, since 1989-1990, it has become impossible to break out of the universe of capitalism. The only remaining option is to civilize or tame the capitalist dynamic from within, end quote. What appears to be lacking in both of the above accounts of the crisis is a recognition of the need for an explanation of the growth of a palpable susceptibility among citizens which I noted above, to authoritarian rather than radically democratic solutions to the crisis of the capitalist social order that ultimately threatens liberal democracy, not from outside, but from within. So is the crisis simply one of politics and ideology? Is it a crisis simply of failed or incomplete institutionalization? Or is the crisis deeper than this and one that has to do with the formation of subjectivity itself. Aside from isolated and sporadic instances, why have citizens not been convincingly mobilized within civil society to transform an order characterized not only by growing inequality, but also by the catastrophic environmental destructiveness of a social order that places its own continued long-term viability in question? As I have suggested elsewhere, far from including the other in public discourse, authoritarian populist movements have effectively constituted immigrants, blacks, asylum seekers, refugees, etc., as the enemy, as an existential threat to the community's entire way of life. And I'm making an oblique reference here to uh, Carl Schmidt. And the manner in which such an enemy is constructed is through an affectively charged uh, language of uh, disgust, that constitutes the stranger as an uncanny, abject, and therefore deeply threatening presence who is incapable of the mutuality of discourse, and that must be, therefore, excluded, if necessary, violently from the body politic. Not unlike the tropes and images through which national socialist propaganda depicted the Jews, contemporary right-wing populism constitutes the other in dehumanizing terms designed to maximize public disgust and fear. Images of disease, bodily wastes, insects, and vermin that threaten to overwhelm and destroy the body politic and can only be confronted by exclusionary policies that occasionally require the suspension of constitutional uh, legality. That's probably really where the moment where the external or the uh, objective institutional crisis and the subjective crisis, in a sense, touch. 
So as Max, he- Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno suggest, uh, in the last year of the Second World War, this constitutes the drive to eliminate what they call the non-identical in the attempt to bring nature under the sway of technical control and mastery, whatever residue of uncontrolled or indeed uncontrollable nature remains elicits an automatic response of revulsion. And I'm going to quote them. The grating sound of the stylus moving over a slate, the hot which recalls filth and decomposition, the sweat which appears on the brow of, of a busy man, everything which has failed to keep up or which infringes the commandments which are the sedimented um, uh, progress of the centuries has a penetrating effect. It arouses disgust, end quote. These developments appear, at least on first glance, to profoundly contradict the justification for the neoliberal reconstitution of contemporary capitalist social relations, dating back to at least the mid-1970s, if not earlier. Such a justification held that the preponderance of market mechanisms would reorient social relations on sound, which is to say free and rational foundations, These were understood in terms of rational choice on the basis of the individual's rather than the bureaucratic state's capacity to make utility uh, maximizing decisions in the area, for example, of health care, education, or indeed housing. This rationale holds that the conditions of social life will in fact be more, uh, be, sorry, will be less encumbered by atavistic uh, allegiances, xenophobic nationalism, racism, sexism, etc., in direct proportion to the preponderance of uh, market rationality as the basis for allocating social goods. The market alone can achieve the kind of smooth equilibrium that must always elude the irrationality of, of state management, coordination, and control. The supposedly enlightening function of neoliberalism at the level of the individual has been precisely the opposite effect. And one could say not just in Europe and North America, but also in the so-called Gujarat model um, under Narendra Modi on the Indian subcontinent, insofar as it has itself there unleashed atavistic um, uh, tendencies uh, uh, of, of tremendous force and, and, and power. Rather than contributing to the conditions of political maturity, which is to say a, a capacity to autonomously and rationally articulate one's interests within the context of a genuine plurality of other such interests, it has led to a seeming surplus of aggressiveness, humiliation, and guilt. Belgian psychoanalyst um, Paul Verhage uh, has recently remarked, quote, meritocratic neoliberalism favors certain personality traits and penalizes others, end quote. Many of these traits he considers to be clinically pathological. Neoliberal capitalism encourages, encourages in his view, superficial articulateness, duplicity, mendacity, recklessness, risk-taking behavior, in place of autonomy, dependence on ever-shifting norms, etc. He goes on to argue, and I quote at length now, uh, our society constantly proclaims that anyone can make it if they just try hard enough, all the while reinforcing privilege and putting increasing pressure on its overstretched and exhausted citizens. An increasing number of people fail, feeling humiliated, guilty, and shamed. We are forever told that we are freer to choose the course of our lives than ever before, but the freedom to choose outside the success narrative is limited. Furthermore, those who fail are deemed to be losers, scroungers, uh, losers or, or scroungers, taking advantage of our social security system. End quote. 
the proliferation of these psychological traits has arisen in tandem with the growth of authoritarian and exclusionary forms of nationalism and xenophobia, as I had I've just suggested. And the combined effect of these developments is to profoundly weaken democratic attitudes, practices, and institutions. So my question in this paper is, to what extent is it possible to revisit Adorno's concept of the authoritarian personality, as Alan Wolf and others have recently suggested, in order to at least begin to clarify the seemingly paradoxical conjunction of deepening inequality and right-wing populism? Arguably, Adorno in the first generation of critical theory, the so-called Frankfurt School, can be understood as seeking to provide, through an appropriation of psychoanalysis and cultural critique more generally, uh, an account of a crisis of subjectivity and experience that would constitute a much-needed corrective to materialist theories of the objective crisis of capitalism, for example, in, in Marxism that pointed towards the radical transformation of capitalism that never ultimately uh, came to pass, so in the, in the 1920s and 1930s. Today, a return to the psychoanalytical dimension of critical theory would seem to be necessitated by the fact that in the face of evidence that neoliberal policies not only do not work, their effects can actually be counterproductive and deeply damaging, which is to say economically self-undermining. Nevertheless, they continue to be pursued with redoubled fervor by states with, apart from certain notable examples uh, or notable exceptions which we can uh, discuss, um, uh, with more or less the full, if passive, acquiescence of um, their citizens. For example, one year after the OECD produced a report clearly outlining potentially disastrous deflationary effects a la Japan of neoliberal policies, there's little evidence of any of its members. Uh, countries, member states, having materially altered course or having plans to do so in the foreseeable future. Psychoanalysis, therefore, provides us with important, uh, the important, an important means by which we can locate the limits of the still prevailing understanding um, of politics that assumes the rationality of subjects in pursuing their own self-interests. So a particularly illustrative case of this was revealed in the 2010 midterm U.S. elections, during which Time Guardian writer Gary Young interviewed a poor white woman protesting President Obama's appearance at a campaign event for Democratic incumbent Harry Reid. The woman aggressively, indeed abusively, aired her opposition to the migration uh, of undocumented workers from south of the border. However, when asked about whether her life had been materially materially um, improved by the Obama administration's comparatively progressive health care, unemployment insurance, taxation policies, she demurred. When Young pushed her to respond specifically to the question of whether Obamacare wasn't a good thing for people in her position, that is to say, somebody without any kind of medical care whatsoever, she replied that, quote, to be honest, I've never really been into the whole Obamacare thing. Because what is really making me ill are the illegals coming over the border. It's quite an extraordinary uh, sequence. Um, you can actually see it on uh, on the Guardian's website. It's quite amazing. So she expressed her disaff- disaffection for the illegals having large families and living off of public funds. However, as it turned out, that past year, Nevada had in fact experienced a net loss 
of 50,000 unauthorized immigrants. So a net loss of 50,000. So psychoanalysis can provide insight into the manner in which individuals participate actively and affectively through the powerful emotions of love and hate and through the way they establish their relations with otherness or the relations, relations with the other in reproducing the conditions of their own domination and undermining their own material interests. In the case of the poor white woman, one could say an interest in self-preservation itself insofar as the lack of med- medical uh, insurance in the United States is, of course, potentially catastrophic. One ought to have an interest in such a thing, in other words. As a consequence, psychoanalysis can also point in the direction, therefore, of helping to identify the limits and possibilities of genuine self-determination and, and will formation. So this is, in a sense, the project of, of enlightenment. How is enlightenment possible? Um, psychoanalysis provides tremendous insight into this. The idea that lies at the center of the concept of the authoritarian personality, namely the identification with the aggressor, is what the preeminent English language Adorno translator and interpreter, Bob Hulot Kenter, calls Adorno's uh, vede mecum. So this idea of the identification of the, uh, identification with the aggressor is key. In fact, Adorno's concern with the problem of the identification with the aggressor was for him after 1933's expulsion um, by the Nazis an existential problem of how to resist the pressures confronted by any displaced person or refugee to resist the enormous pressure to assimilate to his or her new homeland or place of refuge, referring both um, to the uh, sorry, referring both to their own predicament as well as those whose fate was far worse. Adorno states with Horkheimer, in a reference um, to an order that was that had uh, already established itself now as a, uh, as totalitarian. Um, I'm going to quote: "Everything must be used, and all must obey. The mere existence of the other is a provocation." Every other person who doesn't know his place must be forced back within his proper confines, those of unrestricted terror. Anyone who seeks refuge must be prevented from finding it. Those who express ideas which all long for, peace, a home, freedom, the nomads and players, have always been refused a homeland. Adorno refers to the connection between this existential reality he faced in American exile and the development of, of arguments uh, of the arguments of what was to become his book Negative Dialectics. As he says in a lecture presented at the University of Frankfurt on November 11, 1965, in which he discusses the, the Hegelian claim that the negation of the negation results in positivity. I quote, and it's slightly um, long, but after that not too many long quotes. So, I cannot resist telling you that my eyes were opened to the dubious nature of this concept of positivity only in emigration, where people found themselves under pressure from society around them and had to adapt to very extreme circumstances. In order to succeed in this process of adaptation, in order to do um, just what they were forced to do, you would hear them say, by way of encouragement, and you could see the effort it costs them to identify with the aggressor. Yes, so-and-so is really very positive, end quote. 
After elaborating on this point, Dorno goes on to say that, quote, for this reason, therefore, we might say, putting it in dialectical terms, that what appears to be positive is essentially the negative, the th- that is, or i.e., the thing that is to be criticized, end quote. In other words, what appears as positive ultimately harbors um, uh, the domination of the non-identical or the other, which it violently assimilates through an act of subsumption. So, in fact, the idea of, of the identification with the aggressor could be said to lie very much at the heart of Adorno's uh, philosophy, his negative dialectics um, as a whole. In what follows then, I first discuss some of the central features of the concept of the authoritarian personality and then proceed to outline some of the substantive criticisms of the study itself as well as some of its underlying psychological and sociological assumptions. If the concept of the authoritarian personality is to be made available to understand the personality structure of contemporary neoliberal capitalism, so from the authoritarian to the neoliberal personality, two two key criticisms um, must be addressed in particular. The first is the study's reliance on the now questionable concept of state capitalism. While it is far from clear that we have in any straightforward way entered a period in which the state is simply withdrawn, an exact proportion um, uh, to which the market forces have uh, reasserted themselves, if the concept of the authoritarian personality is to be viable, it must be articulated in a way that is both that is sensitive to both the identity and difference in the conditions of contemporary capitalism. The second is the study's uh, reliance on a normative Freudian understanding of the process of ego formation um, through um, the conflict with the father. This, I suggest, can in part be addressed by leaning slightly more heavily um, on Shando Ferenzi's original formulation of the idea of the identification with the aggressor, which itself entails a constellation of concepts. Um, uh, along with identification, there's interjection and dissociation, um, and shifts emphasis towards the pre-Oedipal phase uh, of development and doesn't in, this proce- in the process um, marginalize the role of the mother. So it's in the second area that I, I feel I'm walking on some very thin ice, and so, you know, uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear, um, uh, in particular, your criticisms and comments uh, about that. So if these two criticisms can be convincingly um, addressed, then perhaps it might be possible to develop an idea, again, of the neoliberal personality, which might in turn enable us to sketch a provisional answer to the question I posed at the outset. Namely, how can we understand the conjunction of staggering inequality with the rise of authoritarian populist movements rather than social movements that seek a structural transformation of the conditions of that social inequality. So I'm going to turn now just to a discussion of uh, the authoritarian personality. So the concept of the authoritarian personality is to be understood in the context of a constellation of concerns that lie at the heart of the first generation of critical theory. Again, critical theory understood as the Frankfurt School. Lying at the heart of this are the early studies in the 1920s of uh, the political ad, um, studies in the 1920s of political attitudes of German workers, Max Horkheimer's notion of the anthropology of the bourgeois epoch, and his 1930s uh, studies um, on authority and the family. Uh, Adorno's public lectures and uh, radio interviews from the mid-1960s, uh, uh, and of course the monumental, though much uh, um, impugned, collaborative 
Berkeley public opinion study that culminated in the publication of the authoritarian personality itself, um, which uh, came out in 1950. A key and extremely influential contribution in this respect was also made by Eric Fromm in his book Escape from Freedom, in which he sought to integrate social and psychological approaches um, uh, through a concept of social character. The importance of this work cannot be overemphasized insofar as it sought to bring together the work of Marx and Freud, whose basic assumptions about the relation between the individual and society were, to say the least, not easily reconciled. Fromm argued that social character had to be understood as mediating between the needs and drives of the individual on the one hand and social roles, norms, and practices on the other. And social character represented a patterned response to the contradictory nature of drives, needs, um, and social demands. Fromm's research employed this concept in studying the political attitudes of German workers and concluded that while superficially progressive, their deep underlying personality structures uh, was profoundly conservative, if not uh, authoritarian. If the arguments um, of escape from freedom were received by Adorno and some of the other members um, of the Frankfurt School with certain ambivalence, the concept of the authoritarian personality uh, can be said to be more closely tied to to the arguments of the book that Adorno co-authored with uh, Max Horkheimer and to which I've already referred um, that that initially took the form of a set of conversations in the early 1920s uh, transcribed by Gretel Adorno entitled Dialectik der Aufklärung. In his talk, Scientific Experiences of a European Scholar in America, Adorno states that the elements of anti-Semitism chapter of this uh, uh, text was determinative for his participation in the collective authorship with Levinson et al. um, of the authoritarian personality. Dialectic of Enlightenment itself drew upon Adorno's lecture from a decade earlier entitled The Idea of Natural History, that sought to reorient and transform the typical understandings of both nature as the space of law-like regularities and history uh, as the space of the event-like appearance of the new. Rather than embodying a negative philosophy of history that engages in a totalizing critique of reason, um, as uh, some like Habermas have argued, the text um, aims, uh, I think, um, at a defamiliarizing critique a kind of shock experience of capitalist society as it was entering into its historic crisis of the 1930s. At its most natural, nature was grasped as historical, and history, um, uh, at its most history, uh, history at its most historical, was presented as nature. So it was a kind of chiasmic structure. In other words, the history of capitalist relations was understood in terms of a category drawn from Lukacs of second nature, the apparently immutable eternal laws of nature uh, based on an unending struggle um, for existence, which nonetheless had a historical genealogy. Um, And at the same time, nature was the site of history. That is, unprecedented events, um, for example, such as the um, uh, uh, splitting of the atom. Today, of course, we could include in this idea of nature as a site of the new, the idea of the Anthropocene as the advent of an unprecedented geological epoch as a result of social and historical practices distinguished by irreversible and quite possibly uh, catastrophic human impact on the planet's ecosystem. And between the two, there is a close, mutually conditioning relation. The seeming absence of alternatives to a naturalized 
social order locks into place an accelerating historical transformation of the natural ecosystem with its mass extinctions and dramatically altered climatic systems which themselves produce further positive and ever more dangerously unpredictable feedback loops. Here, Aufklärung, understood as the deepening reliance on autonomous um, and anonymous impersonal forces while promising to liberate human beings from superstition and mythological forms of thinking um, and in the process uh, promote autonomy, actually undermines this very autonomy. A, thorough, a thoroughly enlightened world, according to Horkarman Adorno, radiates disaster triumphant. Aufklärung, or the human attempt to bring external nature under rational control and domination through technical procedures, undermines Mundischkeit, another word for enlightenment, which really signifies uh, political maturity. It's the ability literally to speak uh, for oneself or to speak up, you could say to speak truth to power. And the reason why Aufklärung undermines Mundischkeit is because the mastery and control of nature requires social conformism and domination. So the basic argument is that enlightenment is the means by which the species secures its survival. However, it grossly overshoots its mark and threatens the very life that the logic of self-preservation sought to uh, preserve in the first place. While enlightenment doesn't simply aim at the mere preservation of bare life, but rather promises happiness, flourishing, or the good life, the quotidian existence of the self becomes meaningless, and therefore, in this precise sense, despiritualized or lifeless. Lying at the heart of the concept of the authoritarian personality, uh, then... Um, I'm going to make a slight uh, shift now to talk about the, some of the arguments in the authoritarian personality um, on that background of, of the arguments of the dialectic enlightenment. Lying at the heart of the concept of the authoritarian personality is the problem of ego weakness. The historical roots of the problem are already present in Horkheimer's work from the 1930s, the studies on authority in the family. In these studies, uh, Horkheimer, Horkheimer argues that under the conditions of liberal capitalism, the classical Freudian account of the formation of the sources of moral agency, Mundischkeit, held sway, as Freud lays out in Lecture 21 of his, his introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, the development of libido, as everybody I'm sure in this room knows, um, the male Child's ego is constituted through the Oedipal conflict with the father over the mother. The successful negotiation of the Oedipal, Oedipal conflict for Freud entails a recognition on pain of castration that the mother is off limits to the child and the moment of recognition is at the same time the internalization of the father's law, which is to, to say the formation of conscience or the superego. Freud states that from, quote, the very intense emotional processes that come into play at the moment of this infantile ob- object toy- choice. From this point onward, I'm quoting, the human individual has to devote himself to the great task of detaching himself from his parents, and not until the task is achieved can he cease to be a child and become a member of the social community. However, where Freud draws conservative inferences, Horkheimer draws more uh, radical ones. In other words, the formation of the ego in this way, that is to say through the Oedipal 
inevitable conflict becomes the basis for the very autonomy that lies at the heart of the possibility of opposition to illegitimate authorities. Now, with the advent of what Friedrich Pollock comes to call in the 1940s state capitalism, we see the emergence of a social formation in which competition between individual firms is supplanted by the state, which comes to play an ever greater coordinating role in managing the tendency uh, within liberal capitalism toward overproduction and underconsumption. As a result, the very logic of socialization changes dramatically in Horkheimer's view. The father now experiences a dramatic diminution of freedom and social power, and his authority within the family becomes, uh, begins correspondingly to um, wane. This is what Alexander Mitsulich called the society without fathers. The argument is that the displacement of the imago of the father in the family and other social institutions by an increasingly anonymous system of domination and the formation of the rational ego um, uh, uh, fires and leads to its circumvention by the prevailing superego that establishes its unquestioned authority over the drives. In other words, the individual lacks a focal point for identification and orientation. Right? So th- this is where the um, social processes um, uh, uh, directly meet uh, processes of individual um, uh, moral um, uh, formation. This then becomes the basis for the meta-psychological account of the authoritarian personality, tested by Adorno and his collaborators via imperial, sorry, imperial, empirical research on the fascist potential amongst American university students. The relative weakness of the ego in relation to a societal superego leads to an excessive form of obedience to external authorities. But in order for this to be bearable, the authoritarian personality evinces as well a high degree of aggressiveness to those who are relatively socially powerless. This is why the authoritarian personality is also referred to as kind of sadomasochistic um, personality. What the research showed based on the so-called F-scale um, was that authoritarian personalities exist, exhibited a cluster of traits, um, uh, although the reverse could not be um, said uh, of the so-called anti-authoritarian or democratic personalities who tended to be more differentiated uh, and not uh, homogenous. So these traits um, that characterize the authoritarian personalities included a tendency towards stereotypy, a fear and hatred of difference um, uh, associated as it was with weakness, projectivity, and submissiveness towards existing um, uh, authority. Um, But central to this is... um, Ego weakness. So I just want to now turn to some some criticisms. Uh, I've got a number of them. I'm not going to talk about all of them. Uh, there, there are a number of normative and methodological failings that have been identified in the in the study. Uh, the normative one really isn't is an important one, but I can't discuss it in in, in uh, too great a detail. But the key thing was that there was. Um, a reluctance um, to identify kind of authoritarianism, uh, um, psychological authoritarianism on the left, um, a la what we see, for example, in uh, Hannah Arendt's work in, in terms of trying to understand um, the, the twin forms of, of totalitarianism. Um, and I think this is a really interesting 
criticism uh, and one that uh, that should be made good on insofar as I think today um, especially there are forms uh, of authoritarianism on the left that really do need scrutiny and they need need engagement uh, again that's something we might circle back to in, in in the discussion but as I said at the outset I mean I think that the two main criticisms that uh, are key to my project um, are the ones that have to do with um, both this concept of, of state capitalism and then a, a more this, this relatively orthodox understanding of um, uh, of Freud. So I'm just going to spend a bit of time there, and then I will um, move to to my conclusion. So, as previously previously suggested, Pollock's idea of state capitalism um, uh, essentially consisted of three departures from the liberal form. Uh, that it supersedes. The first one is direct controls replace the market. Old and new devices are employed to secure um, the full employment of all resources, so labor and um, factors of production. And three, in its totalitarian form, this benefits only certain groups, so the apparatchiks, um, whereas within democracy it benefits the people as a whole. It seems deeply questionable that any of these three features uh, of of state capitalism obtained today. Market mechanisms have come to replace direct state controls. Um, Full employment is no longer a a desideratum of public policy. And three, the concept of totalitarianism has itself been rendered somewhat obsolete in the wake of the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And it's highly questionable that China could be characterized as totalitarianism. Social policies in the West no longer, if they really ever did, um, benefit the people as a whole. Be this all as it may, uh, it is far from clear that the form of neoliberal capitalism that has supplanted both totalitarian uh, or and, and Keynesian forms of, of, of state capitalism can be characterized in an unproblematic way as a replacement of um, uh, a simple replacement of state or political institutions by market mechanisms. While it's not possible to engage in a full discussion um, of this very difficult and um, uh, complex question here, it's possible simply to make uh, some remarks in um, this direction. You do have certain uh, theorists such as Pierre Bourdieu um, who do want to make a fairly clear um, argument that what we see in neoliberal capitalism is a, is a reversion to um, a 19th century form where the state simply withdraws from uh, the market. Um, but for the most part, the, the view of neoliberalism is, is, is quite different. So in David Harvey's influential view, neoliberalism con- uh, constitutes the return of a certain form of uh, what he calls following uh, marks of primitive accumulation or what he himself terms accumulation by dispossession. And this entails four um, distinct processes, privatization and commodification, financialization, the management uh, manipulation of crises, and um, uh, a state-driven upward redistribution of wealth. In Michel Foucault's account of neoliberalism, centering on a detailed analysis of the founding order of the post-1949 Bundesrepublik, the Federal Republic, um, in Ordo Liberalism, Foucault emphasizes uh, the manner in which Given its, its radical discontinuity, right, its difference from the, the, the state form that, pre, uh, that uh, preceded it, state institutions were overtly grounded in the economic logic of a quickly 
accelerating um, uh, economic uh, uh, miracle, as it was called. Significantly, neoliberalism centered on a new mode of governmentality, as Foucault puts it, or the conduct of conduct, entailing a redoubled responsabilization of the subject. The subject was now responsible for making him or herself the center of entrepreneurial activity. Picking up on Harvey's and uh, Lapa Vista's um, emphasis on the growth and expansion of finance within neoliberalism, Maurizio Maurizio Lazzarato shows the way in which the state has come to play a key role, particularly after the crash of 2007-2008, as the lender of last resort, which it assumes on behalf of its citizens. So the the, the various bailouts of of the financial institutions and other uh, organizations that were supposedly too too big to fail. The combination of sovereign um, or public and growing private debts, for example, for university education, um, uh, mortgages, as well as for personal consumption, leads to what Lazzarato calls the making of indebted man. Through a reading of Nietzsche's genealogy of moral, Lazzarato suggests that the objective relations of financial debt, uh, schulden, um, leads to a subjective condition of guilt or schuld. There's a very close relationship between the, the, the German words for, for debt and, and, and guilt. This constellation, in his view, has played a key role in profoundly diminishing the possibilities of the kind of social solidarity that would be itself capable of transforming the power of uh, capital. Um, although we do see some forms of it, and obviously we see uh, a very important form of it here in, in terms of um, uh, what uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn has done within the Labour Party. Again, something we can talk about. The relation between creditor and debtor that, in his view, has come um, to actually supplant the capital-wage-labour relation is, therefore, far more than simply an economic relation, but fundamentally also a political relation Debt is itself a form uh, of governance. So that's his other book, Governing by Debt. Um, and I think if we read that Benjamin quote that I read at the beginning, um, capitalism really as a, as um, a, a fundamentally um, a, a social system based on um, uh, on guilt. Uh, there, there are some interesting um, lines that can come out of, of that. So I just now want to turn to the, the, the second point about the reliance on um, a kind of Freudian account of ego development. So along with the presupposition of the Keynesian or totalitarian variants of state capitalism, another major identifiable weakness in the concept of the authoritarian personality, as I already suggested, is its reliance on um, Freudian psychoanalysis to provide a normative account of the development of the ego. Now, there are two aspects to this critique. The first is um, that the general conception of the self in Freudian psychoanalysis um, is uh, um, as it's been called, a monological or a closed system. The second was its specific reliance on the assumption of a strong father figure to ground um, successful moral development. According to the first line of uh, critique, one theorist argues that, quote, within this closed system, the ego invests objects with his desire and takes in these objects to further his autonomy from them. This conception of the individual cannot explain the confrontation with an independent other as a real condition of development and change. It does not comprehend the other, um, um, uh, sorry, it does not comprehend the process of transforming and simultaneously being transformed by the other, right? So it's not, in a sense, reciprocal, dialogical. It is perhaps for this reason that the general conception of the self within psychoanalysis, conception of the 
of, of humans as drive-regulating animals, in the words of Stephen Mitchell, has given away to a more contemporary view of humans as meaning-generating animals, end quote. The reliance on Freud's um, account of the self, emphasizing the internal integration and organization of the drives in relation to the external requirements of society or civilization, ultimately relies on a Hobbesian account of civilization, as laid out in Teralia in the speculative anthropology of the primal horde and totem and, and taboo, or certainly in, um, also in um, civilization and its discontents. And this sits rather uncomfortably with um, the, 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 the larger context of Adorno's uh, own more Hegelian uh, 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 work. So more specifically, Jessica Benjamin uh, argues that the concept of the authoritarian personality relies upon the questionable patriarchal assumption that the normal development of the ego can occur only through its con- uh, confrontation with the internalization, uh, conf- confrontation with and internalization of the authoritarian, uh, the authority of a strong father. Benjamin argues that, quote, Rejecting the alternatives of internalized authority uh, versus seamless conformity, we may still inquire into the impact of this culture upon the character of motherhood and domestic privacy. It is also important to consider the consequences of the, the possibility that the degendering and depersonalizing of authority allows both members to p- play the roles formerly restricted, uh, formerly uh, restricted um, uh, to one. End quote. So essentially, what she's arguing is that there is, in a sense, a, a, a moment of emancipation as well in the um, uh, order that comes to replace uh, liberal capitalism. So if one considers Adorno's imminent critique of Kant's um, conception of autonomy um, or his idea of dependence um, uh, on an otherness that defies subsumption, this is the notion of non-identity, both in dialectical, uh, dialectic of enlightenment uh, and elsewhere, um, as I alluded to above, Adorno is, despite his reliance on a Freudian account of ego formation, actually much closer to Jessica Benjamin's um, intersubjective account of personal, personality than would um, appear to, to be the case on first glance. Adorno makes this clear when, in a discussion of the Hegelian concept of uh, entoisering or externalization, he states, and I'm going to quote, we become free human beings, not by each of us realizing ourselves as individuals, according to the hideous phrase, but rather that we go out of ourselves, enter into relations with others, and in a certain sense, relinquish ourselves to them. Only through this process do we determine ourselves as individuals, not by watering ourselves like plants in order to become well-rounded, cultivated personalities." So in this, you see already um, an account of uh, of the person that's actually quite at odds with some of the assumptions that he brings to the concept of, of the authoritarian personality. So this is a rather different picture than that offered by Freud of an individual who's faced with the task of working through his neurotic symptoms by coming to terms with long repressed wishes from his childhood that return in dreams, parapraxis, and so on. It would make sense, therefore, to approach the concept of the authoritarian personality in light of the notion of the identification with the aggressor that is initially articulated in the work of Shando Ferenczi. While Hulot Kenter attributes the idea to Anna Freud's 1936 Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense, um, the actual source of the idea is Ferenczi, who introduced it in a paper, which I'm, I expect most of you are, are quite familiar with, uh, entitled... Uh, the confusion of tongues between adults and child, the confusion of the language of tenderness and passion. 
presented to the 12th International Psychoanalytical Congress in Wiesbaden in September 1932 and then published uh, the following year. By drawing on Ferenczi, it might be possible to avoid some of the philosophical and historical problems associated with Freudian ego psychology in particular, which, as I've suggested already, understands the individual in terms of a kind of um, uh, uh, a closed system or, or, or monad, um, what Adorno refers to, as I've said, as a kind of well-watered plant, in which the drives were understood to be integrated and in the, in the, in the individual successfully uh, adjusted to the prevailing reality principle. In contrast to Anna Freud's understanding of the term, which suggests a momentary impersonation of the aggressor, in a sense reflecting back to him his own aggression as a way of feeling more secure, Ferenczi's use of the term entails, according to the psychoanalyst uh, Jay Frankel, a, quote, a pervasive change in someone's perceptual world and about actually protecting oneself than simply feeling more secure. End quote. Drawing on his clinical experience with adults who have experienced a deeply traumatic encounter with an abusive adult in early childhood, Ferenczi reasoned that the identification with the aggressor is a typical response to conditions of pre- prevailing social and emotional insecurity. Ferenczi's particular understanding of the concept is especially um, attractive for our purposes, um, therefore, insofar as um, a central feature of neoliberal capitalism entails the direct destruction of an entire social security network um, through what Harvey describes as uh, processes of, as I've said, privatization and commodification, financialization, crisis management, and upward redistribution of wealth. The combined effect of these four processes of neoliberalism could be said to be profoundly traumatic insofar as they deepen and accelerate the struggle for existence that has always constituted the insecurity uh, that characterizes capitalism at its core, back to Hobbes, in a sense, and Hobbes's uh, understanding um, of the state of nature. It is a response to a situation in which, to quote uh, Frankel again, where we have lost our sense that the world will protect us uh, when we are in danger, with no chance of escape. What we do is make ourselves disappear. This response goes back, goes beyond dissociation from present experience. Like chameleons, we blend into the world around us, into the very thing that threatens us, in order to protect ourselves. We stop being ourselves and transform ourselves into someone else's image of us, end quote. So there are three dimensions of the uh, the identification with the aggressor that distinguishes it from Anna Freud's. Rather than a displaced aggression, what we find is compliance, accommodation, and submission. And this works in the following way. Again, I'm relying on Jay Frankel's gloss. Quote, first, we mentally subordinate ourselves to the attacker. Second, this subordination lets us divine the, attra- the, uh, the aggressor's um, desires gets into the attacker's mind to know just what he is thinking or feeling so that we can anticipate exactly what he is about to do and know how to maximize our own survival. And third, we do the thing that we feel will save us. Usually we make ourselves vanish through submission and a precisely attuned compliance with the attacker, end quote. In response, far from repudiating or violently repulsing the malevolent adult, the child acquiesces and reflects back to the adult what the the latter requires of her 
as in the Stockholm Syndrome, according to which the hostage comes to identify with or even love um, his captor, the child identifies with the abusive adult. In addition to the process of identifying with the adult as a threatening external object, as an additional mechanism of defense, the child also interjects or transfers from external to internal reality the the adult's guilt as a form of mastery of a force that if is not if it is not mastered could actually threaten the integrity of the child in particular what the child interjects is um, the adult's guilt by herself taking blame for the event moreover the child undergoes a process particularly uh, at the moment of assault of splitting and dissociation a distancing of that part of the child that has experienced the violence so we can understand these three moments in terms of the, the dialectic enlightenment's presentation of the formation of subjectivity that I outlined a, a, above. First, faced with a social world marked by a Habesian uh, war of all against all, a state of nature that is in fact um, the historical reality of capitalism, the individual must strengthen or harden himself up in order to be able to compete against others and therefore survive. He must subordinate himself um, to and therefore identify precisely with the external imperatives of the prevailing reality principle of this order by making himself competitive in relation to other individuals. At the same time, for individuals to do this successfully, such as an adaptation, such an, ad, such an adaptation to the outside must be introjected or internalized. The individual must therefore renounce the claim to fulfill life. Um, the psychic cost of this dialectic of, of uh, identification with an introjection of the external uh, forces um, uh, uh, in the interest of self-preservation amounts to a diminishment in the capacity of the self for experience uh, and for action at the end of the day. So, just a few words by conclusion and then, then I'll, uh, I'll finish. So, it cl- <clears throat> So to conclude, it seems to me that in place, of an, um, in place of an account of the way in which the transformation from liberal to state capitalism undermines the normative process of ego formation by undermining the father's authority that short-circuits the moral agency of the individual, etc., as I've described it, an account that draws on Shando Ferenczi's notion of the identification with the aggressor seems more promising for the reasons I have discussed Moreover, in contrast to late capitalism that was premised upon the idea that capitalism embodied a contradiction between overproduction um, and underconsumption, the doctrine at the heart of neoliberalism, namely monetarism, uh, asserted an identity of interests between the power of money and society um, as a whole. And this is the so-called trickle-down effect, right? That uh, what is good for capital, in particular what it's good for uh, finance capital uh, will ultimately be, through this trickle-down effect, good for society as a whole. So can the tripart structure uh, of identification, introjection, and dissociation help us understand the paradox that with deepening um, inequality and social insecurity, we see the emergence not of a strong, radical democratic opposition, but rather authoritarian parties of movements. Um, it may do so in the following way. The ongoing crisis conditions of the neo or, uh, the neo-capitalist uh, order constitute it um, uh, as much more radically insecure than the one it replaces, insofar as it comes into being through a rollback of formal and informal networks of solidarity and social security. can there, therefore be understood to be experienced as profoundly traumatic, since Margaret Thatcher's infamous remark about the short, sharp, 
shock is often referred to as a kind of shock therapy. And this was the case in the 1990s when capitalism was being um, radically um, exported into the, f- the former Eastern Bloc. And now, I mean, l- look what is happening in, in, in these societies, in particular Hungary and, and, and Poland, just to name a couple. I mean, there's also Russia. As a way of surviving such shock-like conditions, subjects could be said to identify overwhelmingly not with those social forces that would constitute a robust challenge to that order um, under conditions of solidarity with others facing similar forms of structural exclusion, but rather paradoxically with the very forces that maintain and benefit from those structures. They could be said to interject the aggressor's blame for the very conditions of the crisis itself. At the very outset of neoliberalism, I mean, I've pointed to how it can, can be rooted in, in the, at the, at the origins of the, the German Federal Republic. Um, but I think less controversially, the origins of neoliberalism in the 1970s um, uh, stem from or can be located in, in the, the, um, the coup against uh, Allende and the establishment of the Pinochet regime and the flying of the, the, the boys from Chicago down to set up a laboratory of neoliberalism. Um, so in that example, in the example of Reagan uh, and his attack on the air traffic controllers in the 1980s, of course, later, a little bit later on, Thatcher's um, attack on um, the mine workers, there is a logic by which working class organizations, um, community organizations, um, uh, or you say more generally civil society um, is blamed for the crisis of um, uh, starting really in 1973 with the, with the with the oil crisis, which um, snowballs into one of, uh, of of stagflation. So there is a kind of blame and a guilt assumed, it seems. So is my claim, and, and people will no doubt want to challenge this. Um, but there is a kind of uh, blame um, that uh, comes to be internalized um, uh, as uh, at this moment as a condition, really a psychological condition, one could say, of uh, neoliberalism itself. So the neoliberal order um, with which individual identity, I think this is, this is my last point, and, I, and um, I think this will try to get at how you have this connection between uh, neoliberalism on the one hand and for, forms of, of um, ethno-national exclusion. So yet the neoliberal order, so that, dema- that the, the order that demands identification, um, cannot present itself um, as um, an object that could ever be identified with simply because it is an abstract order. It is a, a logic. It doesn't take a concrete form. So it concretizes itself um, uh, in um, in particular kinds uh, of, of ways, in particular uh, determinate historical and social um, uh, uh, circumstances. And it does so through... Uh, creating a force field against an, an, an enemy alien against which it defends the marginalized and the excluded. In fact, as Moshe Postone has argued in his analysis of anti-Semitism, grounded in his understanding of capitalism as fundament, fundamentally mediated by uh, exchange value or what he calls abstract labor, um, anti-Semitism represents in displaced and reified form a critique of capitalism insofar as um, uh, um, uh, uh, that the order of capitalism takes 
a certain kind of um, a certain set of features. Um, uh, this order is the same kind of presentation, or the Im- the image of this order is the same one that, that that is used to characterize the Jews. As Postone argues, the Jews were rootless, international, and abstract. Modern anti-Semitism then is a particularly pernicious fetish form. Its power and danger result from its comprehensive worldview, which explains and gives form to certain modes of anti-capitalist discontent in a manner that leaves capitalism intact by attacking the personifications of the social form. So the way in which capitalism invites identification is through a kind of personification of its enemy, um, which is itself then a kind of displaced form um, uh, of capitalism itself. If that kind of, I, I hope that makes sense. If not, and we can talk about this. It is truly, in this sense, a socialism of fools, um, according to August Babel. Today, it could be argued, however, that new groups have come to, to occupy, occupy the place once occupied exclusively by the Jews. Thank you. Hi, um, thank you for that talk. Um, a lot of stuff to think about. Uh, I'm just wondering about um, one opposition that you set up, uh, I think I got it right, between authoritarianism and democracy, or authoritarianism, neoliberal capitalism versus democracy, mm. and an undermining of democracy. Mm. Um, but I'm beginning to wonder whether democracy is... Um, is as unproblematic as we take it, in the sense that it facilitated, if not accommodated, fascism and, um, in ancient Greece, slavery. And it seems that um, it um, accommodates forms of slavery democracy. And um, perhaps we should also be asking questions such as democracy for whom? which is also a very psychoanalytic question, I think. For whom? Yeah. Um, that's yeah. it. Um, this, is, this is very good. Uh, I think that um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the the um, National Socialists came to power by democratic means. Um, I'm not sure you can pin slavery on democracy, but certainly democracy wasn't incompatible um, uh, with slavery. It was obviously a very circumscribed uh, understanding of citizenship. Um, and so I think determining uh, the, the nature of citizenship is one of the key uh, questions of, of our times because that's really where the, um, the opposition uh, between those who um, are included and those who are not um, gets, gets drawn. Um, and then one could say, wow, but... There's this international regime of human rights that those who uh, might not be formally included in any particular democracy um, uh, might be able to make an appeal. Um, but we know from Hannah Arendt that one precisely needs uh, a right to have rights. And I think that's exactly this problem that you're referring to. And this is a, the problem of, of the nation state. Um, democracy is understood in the context of, um, of the nation state. So my position on this uh, would be to say, and, and I, I think I, I, I did make a, a distinction in, in the paper between um, the sort of formal, formal structures, formal institutions of uh, 
uh, already existing democracy on the one hand, and then uh, something that I refer to in um, amorphous terms uh, as uh, radical democracy. Um, now, we must defend the former without a doubt. We have to defend the former while also recognizing their um, uh, the, 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 the severe limitations um, of those structures. And you, 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 you're pointing in that direction. Absolutely. Uh, so we have to defend those, those structures um, while at the same time moving uh, to um, uh, uh, radicalize them. Um, now, what does that look like? I, I can't sit here and tell you. Uh, I think this is a matter of, um, of, of thought and action. Um, and I think that one place uh, amongst many where, where one could go for a kind of answer, which is interesting from a psychoanalytical standpoint because it deals with time, um, like time out of joint, uh, is, is Derrida. Derrida's reflections uh, on, uh, on Marx. Um, so d- all democracy is always a, a, a democracy to come, right? It's always a futural kind of project. And any time one stops and says, ah, oh, this is it, we've arrived, um, that's precisely w- when our problems begin, right? So a, a defense of actually existing democracy, uh, let's face it, some of the problems um, uh, that led to the Nazis coming to power in the first place was a left divided against itself, a left that also thought that nach dem uns, right? Um, that we are moving with, with the, the current of history, as Walter Benjamin says, and it's only an inevitability. Um, so we don't have to be too worried. Well, we have to learn from catastrophe, as, as Habermas says, and not make that same mistake twice. So we have to defend those structures. I think a moment of liberalism is irreducible. I think liberalism can't be thrown out with the, you know, not all of liberalism should be thrown out with the, with the bath water, but then the recognition of the limitations of liberalism and a deepening uh, process of, of democratization, which really does work in the direction of including the other. Yeah, David, but who has the microphone? Um, well, I'm very pleased I came this evening. Um, I think it's a very um, important project that is the reinterrogation of the Frankfurt School uh, for a different era. And um, I think psychoanalysis um, has always been uh, both a sort of model of the mind and a model of culture at the same time. It looks inwards and outwards. And so I think psychoanalysis and Marxism are very well positioned towards each other in that psychoanalysis can provide something of the understanding, which is what you've been doing, of the kinds of subjectivities that are necessary for the continuation um, of its uh, uh, social form. So it has to construct those subjectivities. Um, And a couple of points I wanted to make. One is just coming straight away about democracy. And what do we mean by the term democracy? Because in our current epoch, we've seen a degeneration of democracy in that its reduction to commoditized form. I like, I buy. I don't like, I don't buy. 
I like, I vote. I don't like, I vote for something else. And um, this has been um, studied a bit, particularly uh, by a good Marxist in Germany, Marxist social theorist, who talks about this reduction of the political act to its marketized form, creating a terrible alienation. So in Britain, for example, some of the, the parties, they say, don't bother with them, they'll always vote for us. Don't bother for them, they'll never vote for us. They might find out what they want and we'll put it in our party program, in our election manifesto. So in other words, it becomes a commoditized form and people don't sign up to a vision of the kind of world they would like to be in with others. But what's good for me? So a taxi driver, perhaps 30 years ago, if you said, we want to put a penny on the pound so that more children can go to university, would have said, okay. Now he will say, but I didn't go to university. Why do I benefit from that? Why should I give money for other people to? So there's been a shocking degeneration of uh, political engagement. And that takes me to the next point, which I'll try and make as briefly as I can. But it seems to me that the form of social consciousness that has permeated our age is social Darwinism. And, of course, survival of the fittest is a term that Darwin never used. And when he used fitness, he meant fitting with the environment. He didn't mean the gym. He didn't mean the more powerful. But this has been perverted into the ideology of the survival of the fittest, the idealization of survival and the hatred of non-survival. And it seems to me that this penetration of the commodity form into our very consciousness is terribly internalized so that people perceive themselves as commodities for sale in the market. And that's a horizontalized existence. It has no instantiation in social history. So people are all the time anxious because they are not homed, if you like, in a tradition and a history. There's no job for life, there's no security, there's increasingly no social security. I think that creates in everyone a terrible feeling, fear of superfluousness, to use Arendt's point. And I think that is endemic the terror of feeling superior, so that people don't even claim their benefits for fear of being identified as unnecessary, superfluous. Even in the uh, Labour Party rhetoric, they talk about what do voters want, not what do citizens want. Uh, so, so they talk about what do um, taxpayers want, not what do citizens want. So this creeps in, this hatred of uh, those who don't survive, the hatred of those of social security, and the terror of being superfluous. And it seems to me, if we go back to Freud's original model, the category that's implicit in everything you say, though not quite stated, is projection. That when we create the social structures that foster, support this kind of projection, it is not me who is superfluous, it is him on security, or it is her, the immigrant, they are the superfluous people, not me. It creates a form of belonging, but it's a spurious form, a fragile form of belonging. And that kind of political vacuum, to quote Arwen, is a place of non-thought. And into that space creeps, uh, it, it, well, not creeps, but slams extreme violence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for those um, for those comments, and um, it, it would take a, a long time, I think, to, to address all of them. But I'll try and address them in a, in a in a reasonably concise way, and just take up the point that you started with, which was the relationship between 
um, Marx and Freud and try and relate those to uh, your comments about the commodification of consciousness. I mean, what does commodification mean? It, it, it really means a kind of uh, fetishization of the present, doesn't it? I mean, it really means that there there is no past, there is no future. It's right here, right now. Um, how can um, capital, in a sense, um, uh, uh, valorize itself by the most quick and efficient means? Um, and I think that both Marx and Freud want to try to understand the social and the um, the psychological precisely through a nuanced understanding of of time and temporality. So I think the temporal dimension here is really key. And I would say, you know, what, what's confronting us all today is, is a politics of time. Um, we are literally running out of time uh, in terms of making some really fundamental changes to the way in which um, our, our social relations are, are organized vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, the um, uh, planetary destructiveness of uh, the, the current order. Uh, there are many forces pushing or militating against transforming those social relations. I think one of the fundamental ones is this consciousness um, that you've spoken about, a reified consciousness, to use Eric uh, Lukács' terms, which can only see the immediate reality, that can only see, yeah, the, the, the um, particular reality. Uh, what's in it for me at this time now? I'm not going to think even five years down the road or ten years down the road. Um, and I'm not certainly not going to have an understanding of a community or society that itself is temporarily grounded and historically grounded, um, that can take some sort of narrative shape. For our narrative is, is very important. We can't even tell stories any longer. Um, and and there's, a, there's a long um, uh, and rich uh, um, history of uh, a consideration of the, of, of the possibility of narrative storytelling of experience uh, in figures uh, not just like um, Arendt but also Walter Benjamin. Right? So I think this is where I go really to try and um, uh, stage a kind of uh, deepening discussion uh, between the figures you mentioned. So, so social, critical social theory, um, psychoanalysis, but also the phenomenological political theory uh, of, of Hannah Arendt. Um, but it does, I think they all, in their own way, in different, with different, different emphases, um, emphasize temporality. And this is exactly what's, in a sense, being reified and, and, uh, um, and, and, and undermined. The last thing I would say, especially in terms of getting from the particular to the universal, for Arendt is a conception of judgment. That's the, that is the opposite of non-thought, right? Judgment is really thinking in, in a strict Kantian sense. And with, through judgment, we move from the particular to the universal by specifically taking into account the potential perspectives of others. Uh, this seems less and less possible today for the reasons you, you raised, I think, uh, in a very um, uh, perceptive way. Thank you. Uh, can I continue? Um, great, great uh, paper and full of so many strands. Um, the failure of capitalism again in the last few years has been um, brilliantly projected, as you were describing, onto the other, onto the poor, 
uh, I mean, in this country, in Europe, in Greece, uh, it's the fault of the poor. Um, and if you're poor, you have to accept your fate that it's your fault that international capitalism has failed. And yet, the group can split into us and them. So uh, the group can then identify and say, well, actually, it's not me, it's not us, um, it's the blacks, it's the Muslims, it's the, um, it's the Jews, it's the Taliban, uh, anybody but me, and we're going to get rid of those people. So uh, it's really the fault of shit. We go back to the psychoanalytic model. We have to extrude it. Um, and we are going to identify with the aggressor. Um, I've just been this last two or three days to New York and back again. On the way back, the taxi driver who took me to the airport wanted to talk about Donald Trump and what did I from Britain think. And we got into a, a really interesting uh, conversation while we were queuing to get off the highway. And he, he said, I'm a Republican, but Trump's a joke. He said, all my friends are Republicans, think Trump is a joke. On the way out, um, British Airways had an extraordinary film, I think a political film for the US, which is a film called Nebraska with Bruce Stern. And it's about uh, an old man from a little hick town who gets um, uh, a letter which says he's won a million dollars. He hasn't. It says you'll be put into a drawer and maybe you will. But he reads it as... <laughs> I won the American dream. And this old man of 75 then starts walking a thousand miles to the office where he's going to be given his million dollars. And it's, it then becomes a, a modern variant of a road movie. And his son says, Dad, you're going to kill yourself. You can't walk. I'll take you. And the drive for a thousand miles through Nebraska is all about emptiness. There's nothing there except little towns with people who are doing nothing, who've got no no work, they're not growing anything, they're just they're just envious, they're sort of deep blood red Republicans who think that uh, it's the fault of all those other people. And they hate this man because they think he's a millionaire. And anyway he gets eventually he gets to the place where he gets his million pounds and he's told that he didn't, but instead he can have a prize, uh, which is a, 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 a cap which says prize winner. <laughs> and it's deeply, deeply sad. And the trouble is there are millions and millions of Americans, not in New York, not in San Francisco, not in L.A., not in Chicago or Boston. Millions of those are what this film is about, and they are going to be voting of course, for um, these mad Republicans. Yeah, wearing their hats. Wearing their hats. Thanks, so it's yeah. an extraordinary metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, so um, here, right? yes. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I, I wanted to introduce the concept of representation because democracy, what sort of representation the citizens aspire to have. Representation is also a, a very uh, important psychoanalytic term. You know, the drives are not visible. They are represented. They emerge <clears throat> as uh, phenomena that need to be read. 
but also um, the representation has something to do with time uh, making always present because it's impossible to think because re- the concept of representation psychoanalytic theory is very preoccupied in contemporary times with the effects of trauma and trauma is what cannot be represented so it's a concept that, that on which several ways of thinking several layers of thinking can hinge mm. okay, thank you the, um, if I can just quickly respond uh, obviously at uh, a basic level when we talk about political theory and its concepts particularly democratic theory um, the question of representation is, is, is hugely important too and that, that's another nice point of, of intersection obviously um, uh, representation within representative democracy is, is as we were already suggesting although we didn't use those terms um, a very limited and, and problematic form um, there's also an attempt I mean one of the models of um, radical democracy today um, is, is that seen uh, amongst the, um, the Kurds um, certain notion of, um, of self-organization uh, in the context of transformed power relations, gender relations in particular, in, in Rojava, for example. Um, and uh, um, David Harvey has really uh, said some interesting things in support of this model, um, that perhaps this model can be, can be um, learnt from. So uh, I think that's an interesting uh, line of, of discussion, should one want to take it. Um, but I also think, yes... Uh, what you're talking about, really, I think from the Lacanian perspective, the problem of the symbolic order, um, the trauma as the rupture uh, within the symbolic order. So it's, it's not just what can't be represented, but what actually shatters the means of representation, if, if, you can, if I can put it so crudely. Um, the, the, the symbolic order really undergoes a, a, a kind of crisis, which then is, 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 is recognized as a, the kind of trauma. Um, when we talk about Represent the the other as the representation or as manifestation of the abject of, of shit literally, um, which is also an in- interesting line going into the discussion of money, right? Um, uh, and and I think that that was also an undercurrent in my in my talk. Um, but that is also what um, uh, destabilizes one could say the symbolic order too. Um, so I think that. My interest would be in the way in which the use of such rhetoric um, goes to um, it is so powerful precisely because it constitutes a trauma at maybe this deeper level, not just the trauma of the, the, you know the withdrawal of social services and so on, which are very important in themselves, which at an educational level at a um, at a social level level of socialization impinges upon the, the symbolic order in a number of, of ways but the the presentation of the other as that which, as I said, using Carl Schmidt, right, threatens our entire way of life. What are you threatening? You're threatening culture. What is at the heart of culture? Representation. What lies at the heart of representation? Well, language, right? So I think that becomes, an, it explains the power of this rhetoric. And one of the things I say in a different, uh, different article that I, I've written is that 
one way of understanding insecurity is this, this kind of pervasive anxiety that we have for reasons that have been discussed, right? We, 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 we make ourselves into what C.B. McPherson calls possessive individualists. We, we um, are, in a sense, the, um, the uh, accumulators of our own sort of social capital. We're very anxious about its valorizability. Are we actually going to be one day superfluous? Will we be required? Will our jobs be eliminated? This is something that university lecturers think about all the time. Will we be simply rendered redundant? Right? Um, we're already, I mean, not myself, thankfully, but so many of my colleagues are, are, are precarious, in very precarious positions. And so, let's say that creates a condition of anxiety. Anxiety can't be said to take a determinate object. We can have certain analyses of these anonymous forces, these alien forces that are, are, are ruling our lives, but we don't have any particular object for that anxiety that and therefore it can't be understood as fear it's simply pervasive what i think populist discourse does is that it transforms that amorphous anxiety into fear by directing it and projecting it onto a a given enemy the, the enemy that, that that threatens your entire way of life and i think this move is so so important and we can study the different ways in which it's articulated. Right? So, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for this. Uh, thank you very much for this very uh, inspiring uh, uh, lecture, um, because I think that you gave a very good um, explanation of the neoliberal situation where we currently are in. And that's the thing that I often call, uh, or the thing is I call that often, uh, uh, the London life syndrome. London. So, so, uh, it's not like Stockholm syndrome, but London life syndrome. Okay, right. <laughs> and, um, because that's the thing that I see a lot, uh, uh, also amongst all my clients, uh, that actually a lot of them, uh, are in a situation where they feel trapped and helpless and, and kind of, uh, fatalistic. So, uh, that really connects a lot with everything that, that you've been speaking about. Could I ask what context? Um, your clients in which context? The thing is I'm a counseling psychologist okay. and, um, but actually, the question I'm going to ask now is actually more about my other uh, uh, thing that I do more as a volunteer, uh, because we are also trying to kind of um, organize uh, kind of a left movement here in London. And um, there are actually also a lot of um, uh, therapists involved, etc. But now, now I'm going to ask you a very tricky question, um, and that's actually about what, what could you – or. If, if you start to, to kind of dream or fantasize, what kind of uh, suggestions would you have to actually, um, yeah, change those, yeah, those situations for people who feel trapped, but also kind of on the political level? Because as therapists, I know kind of what I can do, but, um, but there are so many political initiatives now people are really struggling to how can we really help people to get out of this what i call a uh, kind of a london uh, uh, syndrome or a kind of stockholm syndrome so, yeah, yeah. so um, what suggestions could you possibly have well I, I think this is a really excellent question it is tricky um i'm, I'm not sure i have anything earth shattering but i do think um there's been a lot of work done um, and I'm not an expert in, 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 by any means in this area, but there's been a lot of work done uh, on um, the um, uh, relationship between 
uh, affect and, and politics and political organizing, um, really through the work of the Italian autonomists. But going back um, to Spinoza, I mean, Spinoza is really the, the theorist of, uh, of, of affect. Um, so really, the how can capacities be developed for bodies to influence other bodies in ways that are, are, are politically um, uh, uh, transformative? And, I mean, just taking some inspiration from that, I would say that one of the things that probably characterizes um, London syndrome is, London life syndrome, is um, just feelings of isolation. And, and bring in Arendt again, um, one of the key components of uh, totalitarianism is isolation in, in the mass, um, which creates right conditions for... Um, a, 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 she doesn't use the term, but a kind of identification with um, with the collective um, in a in a in a fascistic way. I think what really needs to be broken down are those conditions of isolation. And I think that for so long the left and its its particular authoritarianism, um, the far left historically, has been to look at politics as a kind of ascetic, um, uh, selfless. Uh, practice that shouldn't under any circumstances involve enjoyment um, or even fun. Uh, right? And I think that today um, I think we recognize how important at some basic level um, solidarity isn't just about you know saying the right slogans at the right times, carrying the right kinds of banners on the right streets and the right marches. When I was just at the, um, the Triple L um, uh, demo in uh, in Berlin to commemorate um, again politics of time, politics of memory, um, the, um, the the murders of uh, of uh, Karl Liebknecht and and Rosa Luxemburg, um, and there was some of this, but people were so aggressively having fun that I'm not sure they really were. Um, I think you need contexts in which people can really um, enjoy the same space in the same movements together with one another. But also in an intellectual way. This is my last point about uh, in this in this in this direction. I think one of the themes that's come out of this, especially again when we talk about Arendt, is the importance of intellectual activity. The, the left has been as maybe more in some ways um, anti-intellectual than the right. At least the right through you know the influence of Leo Strauss has had this idea of an exoteric and an esoteric teaching. So we engage in an esoteric teaching and we, um, um, we tell the masses something else. But at least we value the, 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 the importance of, of, of reading uh, the history of political thought, engaging with it. I think on the left this has, hasn't been the case um, uh, you know, for, for a long time. It used to be the case that you were attracted to the left because it was so rigorously intellectual and omnivorously so, polymathic. I mean, figures like Trotsky, they knew everything about everything. And that's why you wanted to be there. At least that's what was one of the real attractions for me um, uh, to the left. But now it's, it's gotten so far away from that. I, I, one last point. I think developing the idea of the critique of guilt, that what, what saturates everything isn't just a commodity a consciousness, a reified consciousness, but one that's fundamentally racked with guilt. And I'd say one thing about my uh, own um, context, which is Vancouver, so much of what passes for political um, discussions 
are genuflections before those who are the most oppressed. We all must feel guilty that we're not as oppressed as them. And we will simply shut up and listen to whatever they have to say, because of course they're right. Right? No, this is not the case. We need to get back to an idea of dialectic, of actually talking and arguing with one another. I think at the University of, um, at a university in Australia, um, there was, I think, a, um, a conference on, um, on queer theory, queer activism, and so on. And all the participants had to sign a form that they wouldn't be arguing with other participants in the conference. And I, I just, my, just, my jaw just dropped. I, I just could not, could not believe it. That isn't an extraneous luxury. That is it. I mean, that is a, a key aspect of politics. And I think we've really moved away from that. So, thanks for that. Very good question. Thank you. I, um, because if it's a short, short question. Well, I, I, I wanted to criticize. Yeah, short critique. That, yeah. Oh, okay, um, please go. Where's the microphone? of the left as anti-intellectual. Okay. I think there's a different dimension of it, and I think you capture beautifully um, that kind of masochism. You know, like, I must own to having knowledge because, you know, privilege is needed. That yeah. kind of nonsense. And I certainly remember that, particularly around the 70s. But there were huge think it's comments of getting taken the left review, to some oh, extent yeah. the London Review of Books, where yeah. there's a huge uh, cultural intellectual engagement. Yeah. I think, I've overstated the point. I don't I think, think one yeah. can, you know, yeah. prescribe what to do. You think of you, and I think what you've suggested is, is more about, it's also about protecting because nothing is total. Harry Anderson talked about the total marketization. It's not total. There's always somewhere a dialectic opposite. And there are forms of organization and, 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 which are not commodified. And our job is to protect those forms of social organization that are not marketized. And that keeps the light burning for a different form of consciousness. And one of the most important of those is the social welfare system and the NHS, which are, for, the NHS is being privatized before our very Anything yeah. we can do, and where it's hated, it's hated because it's anti-capital, it's anti-financial capitalism. So we have to support it. Yeah. So I think that's a very important So this, the struggle of the junior doctors now is, is really a key flashpoint, isn't it? Yeah. Relevantly, so thanks for the, the, the interesting talk. Relevantly, so I'm a junior doctor. So I was, and um, it was really interesting to have a discussion with my peers, um, trying to understand exactly their mode of thinking, in a way, how do they see themselves, how do they identify themselves in this, um, in this strike, you know, who are they, subjectivity. And I was striking by the fact that I was talking to them, and I got this clear response from them that, look, what we're doing here is not political. They said that, and I couldn't believe my ears, and I couldn't, what do you mean, I, I, I couldn't understand where they were coming from and where they were going, what does that mean, we're not political, you do not understand where you are, when you are, you know, striking, which is the ultimate form of violence, as Benjamin, in the, in the critique of violence, yeah. and I was wanting to connect that to, with the arguments about the idea of so when you have arguments, there's violence, it erupts. What is that violence? 
and do we need that violence and what kind of violence do we want so we can change because there is violence and we have to accept that what we are doing here as junior doctors I mean it, it entails violence and what kind of violence and this is my 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 point this is a very good point because one of the things that that they're concerned about is doing violence to patients because they are unable to work properly um, for for want of sleep. So I think that's 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 definitely part of it. Um, but I also think um, that uh, this goes to the question of political consciousness. Um, they might simply be accepting an extremely um, uh, commonsensical view of what what is political and what isn't. And the, and the way this was discussed on the BBC today was that, oh, it's become political because Corbyn has 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 taken a stance in favor of the doctors. And this has happened since, oh, I can't remember when. Well, I, I can remember a few, a few times that the, the Labour Party did. It was a while ago. Um, it's not the Labour Party, you know, the, the Labour Party has not, not been um, uh, particularly uh, uh, left until he, he came to uh, came on as leader, but I think this is it. I, and so maybe that's also a, a, a part of this discussion of, of where we go is through the violence of argumentation, you move from one level of understanding to a different one. I, I'm not going to say it's a higher one, but it's a different one. It's a different understanding that takes into different. It takes into account um, different aspects of our, our shared social world. Um, and so I, I think that that might be a way of again understanding um, how to sort of move move things forward. I think that uh, reality is perceived as a violent seeing of something. That's why psychoanalysis is not enjoyed by uh, those in power, and often the patients are frightened that by seeing what they know is there but don't want to see, can't see, that will be a violent act. And sometimes it is in order to bring into the room that which is real, mm. which hasn't been... Uh, up to, understood, felt, mourned. But a process of working through that violence to the other side. Yes. In in a a formed way, that violence can be looked after and held so that you can deal with it. It's not an explosion. Every patient who comes to see me, in a way, is a walking bomb that needs diffusion in some form. Right. Very nice way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking, how would you link that to the political? Or is that inherently political or not? That I'm wondering oh, I think about. Psychoanalysts it. need to speak up rather than staying in their consulting rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it one, one last? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Hi there. Um, just a short question. Um, <clears throat> so I'm interested in the fact that um, as a political theorist, you're writing about psychoanalysis. Um, my feeling, my critical feeling towards some of the kind of psychoanalytically inspired critical theory is that it lacks a kind of um, historical consciousness, um, that it can tend, ha- tend towards a kind of um, ahistorical flattening of uh, sort of social relations as a kind of a, a matter of sort of sociological inquiry to further understand more and more specifically the nuances of uh, different kinds of social relations. But it lacks a kind of sense of literally just kind of how things change where we are 
has a common, like, in time, um, and very politically, obviously. I'm wondering what, just how you can start to understand sort of how, how you could differentiate yourself from that particular kind of trend within sort of psychoanalytically inspired political theory. Um, and still, still retain something from psychoanalysis mm. and that great tradition, but yeah. um, with the histor- what the specificity of this historical consciousness might be. Mm. Uh, that, I think this question would take me a, a, an awful long time to really provide satisfactory answer to. Um, but I, I, I will say in my defense that I, I, I was trying to suggest ways in which we could um, make these concepts more sensitive to historical transformations. So it really was one of my central claims, right? Um, now, whether I actually uh, was able to do that, I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical that I, I would have been able to do it in, in a paper. I mean, this requires a longer um, uh, process of, of, of argumentation. Uh, but I, I, I think that um, this, is, this is the attempt. However, your question could also be coming from a different kind of angle, that the very understanding of history um, uh, that... I'm assuming here in 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 this, in this work isn't itself quite specific enough, um, and this would be possibly a, a, a Foucauldian argument that you know in Nietzsche genealogy and history is this notion that you know that tr- traditional forms of history writing writing even radical ones really start out with some universal conception, and then they move to the particular, and they don't really focus on the actual institutions and practices as they as they um, emerge in their specificity and in their historical discontinuity. Now, I think that's a that's a more challenging claim that that then I think has to um, uh, itself be um, confronted. Um, how how does one start to do that? I mean, my strategy would be um, to really say that all roads uh, lead back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche is key for psychoanalysis <laughs> in the Freudian sense. Um, people might challenge that, but I, I think uh, I, I think Nietzsche is hugely important for for Freud. Um, uh, Nietzsche is also very important for understanding um, the spirit of capitalism, a la Max Weber. Um, also very important, of course, for independently uh, of those two sources uh, for Adorno and Horkheimer. Um, but also, nobody is um, more Nietzschean than, than Foucault, of course. So, so there's a way of um, maybe uh, inflecting the discussion um, in, a, in a Nietzschean direction, as as opposed to say a, a strictly Marxist one, which which does get you these kinds, you know, into these problems of of you know generalities of, of modes of production, um, transformations of social. Uh, formations and so on, um, which becomes kind of un- unwieldy, especially when you're trying to marry it to a more nuanced understanding of, uh, of of psychoanalysis. But that would, in a sense, be my you know my strategy. And and ultimately, when I come to uh, to really um, develop this project further and and turn it hopefully in, in, into a book, I think um, I'll have to deal with some skeptical objections to psychoanalysis from a Foucauldian direction. Because after Foucault, um, you can't just go, go naively to psychoanalysis in a social-theoretical way. Um, the, the critique of, of, of Freud in the history of sexuality in, in particular, uh, the, the, the introduction, is something that has to be contended with. 
and I, I suspect that's that's where your question is coming from. Is that am I am I right in that intuition? Not entirely, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for the question, anyway. As, as a follow-up to, um, to your answer to the question, I'm just wondering what are the limits of psychoanalysis as a vehicle of social transformation? Um, it's a question open to the analysts in the room as well. But my, um, is there such really a thing, big question, could there be such a thing as a psychoanalysis of the masses? Yes. Or isn't psychoanalysis a very personal one-to-one relationship? In which case, um, I'm not so sure that we can um, just um, let go of Marx and um, a project of um, the utopian project. Um, so, yeah. yeah, that's the I, question. I, I, what are the limits of, of psychoanalysis and, and Nietzsche as well, who's of course a great thinker and fundamental to psychoanalysis and themes of repetition mm. and so forth, but I still I haven't been able to figure out from Nietzsche some sort of collective um, account of action and right. not just an account, but a real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, the, the, these are very complex terms of questions. Um, I, I don't want to get rid of Marx, but um, I, I and uh, so I put that to one side and and say um, I defer to to the analysts in the room, of course, on, on the question of of uh, psychoanalytic practice, but I, I wouldn't want to say that we we can psychoanalyze the masses. Psychoanalysis deals with the individual, and I think that to, to um, uh, try to maintain the integrity of the individual in uh, his or her psychological depth, I think that is a really key project. I think for the reasons that were said. Uh, Said earlier, um, and so um, I think that, that that balance has to be struck, and maybe a kind of tension between the social level of analysis and the individual level has to be maintained. Um, but that can also be done from other sources, like phenomenology and so on. But yeah, it's, it's a question I'm not going to really satisfactory satisfactorily answer. Um, no, can I can I um, can I ask a question? <laughs> I think you you want to end? Uh, Which one? Yeah. Um, so thank you for your your very engaging paper. I had I have many thoughts about it, but I wanted to ask you the most um, uh, difficult one I'm struggling with. Um, I mean, I I cannot help but think that in addition to what you've uh, highlighted, also um, you know organizations nowadays, businesses transnational businesses are not only um, the instruments of capitalism through which uh, human beings are alienated and commodified, etc., 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 and also groups, the largest probably in history ever, where human beings come together and work together, you know, for a common goal. Uh, of course, of course, uh, probably the biggest ever in history, yeah, uh, a transnational uh, company is an example of this, right? Probably the goals can be criticized. There's obviously the, 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 the capitalist end of this organization is, is, uh, it cannot be, it cannot be denied. However, there's much more at stake. There's also other things at stake 
in in organizations of 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 this of this kind than just making money, right? Um, so yeah, I I I was wondering where does this fit in in the alien in the absolute individualistic logic that underpins the system. This also uh, group um, um, functioning of society. Good question. I mean, I, I suppose I'd come back um, to you with a question of my own, and that is um, to say, what does it mean to be together in that context? How are they together? Um, uh, in 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 what kind of temporal uh, modality? Um, what are the conditions of their work? Um, and that organization that you've described is, seems to be relatively undifferentiated, but as we know, these organizations are extremely differentiated, extremely hierarchical. Um, and um, so I think those questions then have to be answered uh, first before then we can get an understanding of what it is to be together and then what the political and social and psychological uh, aspects of that of that being together uh, of that midsign, as 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 Heidegger would say, um, actually are. So there'd be there'd have to be a larger discussion there. Um, I, there are social theorists who who talk about this transnational organization of uh, of a labor force that is um, largely connected through no, uh, nodes within various networks that could then serve as um, a um, form of, of of resistance to um, empire, right? This is the argument uh, of of the multitude. So, so this organization could be understood as as a, a multitude of singularities, as Hardin Negri say, and then offering the possibility of some kind of resistance. But uh, I'm myself, I'm extremely uh, skeptical about this. But it's one way. It's been. It's one way that question is. Yeah, I'd to say thank you very much. And thank you all very much for coming and for contributing to the discussion. And, uh, yeah, yeah. because we can f- continue informally afterwards. Yeah. You know, yeah. What to be yeah. thrown out now. But I thought it was a, it was a great, great talk and also very inspiring. And, yeah. Thank you. Well, I thank you so much for the, the invitation and, and for your great comments and questions. <coughs> <coughs> well, <thanks. laughs>